This episode contains explicit language and subject matter that may be upsetting for some listeners. There are more details available in the episode description. Thanks for listening. This is Posticle Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Hello, Posticle Chronicle listeners. Our guest today is Ivy Knight. Ivy is a former line cook turned author, food writer, and cultural programmer. Her writing can be found at Playboy, Condé Nast, Vice, Globe and Mail, Western Phoenix, and many other places. She's also a cultural programmer creating and hosting industry events attended by some of the most influential food personalities around the world. She has written three books, and in 2019, she was nominated for the Landsberg Award, which is presented to a journalist that raises awareness about women's equality in Canada. She's also a documentary filmmaker, Instagram meme page owner, and a very active member of the restaurant scene in Toronto. And I'm probably missing a couple other uh, things that she does, but welcome, Ivy. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. You do so much stuff. Uh, When you meet someone at a party uh, and they ask you what you do, uh, what do you usually tell them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't been to a party in so long. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know if I remember. No, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a journalist because that's my main thing. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, always know you wanted to be a writer? I've always been a writer, but I didn't always call myself a writer. I didn't always claim that as my career title. Uh, for a long time, I was a line cook, as you mentioned, and I worked in kitchens for a long time. And I started writing while still in kitchens. And uh, it took about two years before I was making enough uh, writing to get out of the kitchen. No, that's not true, actually. I got a job at Food Network, and that paid really well. So I was able to get out of the kitchen, work at Food Network, and write a lot more because kitchen hours are insane. So, so uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but... All good. No, um, that's really interesting. I think that must have been a crazy transition that had a crazy amount of imposter syndrome. It must have been a very, I guess, dramatic change. Like, how did you make that transition into writing and uh, I guess like later becoming a, a cultural programmer? All of these things just came about because I didn't want to be a cook for the rest of my life. And I knew I didn't want to be a chef, a head chef. I didn't have Mm -hmm. the mentality. There was a part of me that completely despised the restaurant business and was disgusted by it. And uh, that part of me wouldn't die. So it makes it really hard to stay in a business uh, that you kind of hate. Don't get me wrong. I love restaurants and I I love people in the restaurant industry and my career is still, even though I'm out of kitchens, my career is still based in large part on the restaurant industry. But uh, the toxic culture of, of kitchens that's been part of kitchen culture and restaurant culture since the dawn of time, that's the part I don't miss. As for the other jobs that I've done, they've all come about because I wanted to get out of the kitchen and uh, I started writing while still cooking. And then the Food Network happened through writing, through connections that way. 
and I had imposter syndrome for sure. But um, working on a Food Network show, I worked on a show with Lynn Crawford, and she is a chef. And she is such a like kind and loving and welcoming person. So she was essentially my my boss. I mean, she wasn't, but she was, you know, on the road. We were on the road for that show for a long time. And she was just, I mean, if I was going to go in and feel any imposter syndrome, it quickly dissipated because of her, you know, wonderful love and care. So it was a really great intro to TV, but I, I still, TV wasn't like where my heart was, but it was great and it was great pay and a really fun experience to see how, you know, reality TV is made. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you worked in restaurant kitchens as a line cook for 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. D- did you miss it at all? Uh, yeah, there are parts of it that I miss, definitely, because... It's a job like no other, like there's no other job on earth that is like restaurant kitchen work. Um, So there's a lot of it I don't miss for sure, but I really miss the camaraderie and I miss the people because the job attracts a certain type of people. You know, Um, if you're really into uh, straight lines and legalese and sharp pointy pencils, you might be attracted to rowing the sport. I know Mm -hmm. this because my husband is a rowing coach. (laughs) And so there's a certain type of people who are attracted to rowing. They're usually, you know, lawyers, accountants, engineers, people like that. Mm -hmm. And kitchens attract a certain type of people as well. And they're like fringe dwellers, rebels, crazy maniacs, you know, um, it's this whole subculture and that's the type of person I am. And that's the type of person that I'm drawn to. So I really miss being in the trenches with people like that and meeting people like that on a regular basis. I feel that with media and really the general public really romanticizes restaurant culture with like movies like Ratatouille or like The Chef. Speaking of, I guess, restaurant culture and the people that it attracts and the characters, what are some narratives that you think media or the general public has accurate about restaurant culture? And what are some portrayals that you think are inaccurate or harmful maybe? That's a huge question, and I think like I'd have to write a whole book to answer it. So, mm-hmm. yes, kitchen culture is romanticized for sure, and the whole idea of the chef is romanticized, and it has been for a very long time, and that's fun. You know, like something like Ratatouille or that Queen Latifah movie where she thinks she's going to die and she goes to cook with Gerard Depardieu. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. So, like, these movies are just like they're not based in reality, but they're fun. And they're wonderful. And the romance of the kitchen and the romance of food is like perfect for film and and TV and everything. But like accuracy, uh, I don't know. I I don't think there's been like documentary. Sure, there's accuracy in documentary. But for film, I can't really think of anything that's dead accurate. But I, I don't know. I think I've seen all of the food movies that exist on the planet. And the ones that I 
and that I am drawn to the most are the ones that don't necessarily go stick to kitchen culture that are more about like just cooking in general, like eat, drink, man, woman. The main character is a chef, but the most beautiful parts are when he's cooking at home for his daughters. And uh, the portrayals or narratives that are harmful, I guess, in, in that type of media. <sighs> and I know we're asking questions that someone could have like a whole PhD on. So I understand like if there isn't like a like an answer that comes to mind. <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, if you wanted to do like an accurate depiction of a kitchen, that it would have to be a really uh, horrifying movie. If you wanted to show it in all its like all the badness and you could make a really amazing movie showing all the bad things that take place in a kitchen. Um, mm. But nobody's done that yet because it's always romantic. And, you know, there's always a there's always a scene where where the restaurant slammed and the cook is or the chef is on the line and he actually he just walks off the line and like goes outside and, you know, has a conversation with somebody. And there's like stacks of fresh vegetables for no reason, just in the foreground. Mm -hmm. Or there's like a gigantic raw fish just laying there in the foreground while service is going on. It's, just, it's, it's hard to depict accurately because it's not fun. Mm -hmm. Maybe the most accurate depiction of a restaurant kitchen happens in action movies like old action movies like Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal when the bad guys run through the kitchen and like throw boiling water on each other <laughs> or throw cleavers and then the cooks are scrambling to get out of the way while bullets whiz by that maybe would give you the real vibe of a kitchen <laughs> that that's hilarious that's a <laughs> I love that imagery um what do you think that restaurant managers or owners need to do better for their employees in the real world not in media <laughs> in the real world oh man it's so simple it's so simple and i've been saying this for years and years not just me lots of people have been saying it but it just doesn't it just doesn't uh, go viral <laughs> uh the only thing that restaurant owners have to do to make their restaurant a better place and take better care of their employees and drain the toxicity from their establishment is to just not allow it. So, and it can't just be lip service. It has to be set in stone. And you just say, we don't allow racism. We don't allow rape jokes. We don't allow grabbing and hitting and screaming and abuse. And if you don't allow it from the top, it has to come from the top. If you don't allow it, it doesn't happen. It's really simple because I've seen that in action. And I know a number of uh, women who own restaurants who have put those kind of policies in place and they don't have any problems with their culture and their workplace. So it's really simple and it doesn't cost a dime. So. I know that you've been a line cook uh, previously in the past, and it's been a while, I guess, like since you've worked as a line cook, but do you think that the toxicity in kitchens has improved or like has, uh, has been going down over time, like over the past couple of decades? Uh, not, the, not over decades, no. Um, I think that it's changed since Me Too because Me Too 
was a revelation to me because I had lived through all of this horrible shit, but I thought it was normal. We all did. Everybody did. You didn't talk about it. It was just part of the deal. So then Me Too happened and people started questioning it and calling it out and saying that it wasn't right. And I felt like I was, you know, I don't know, like I'd been living in a coffin and I came out into the light and was like, really? Seriously? It was just like something that was just taken for granted. And to find out that this thing that had always sucked or made you feel terrible or, you know, filled you with fear, that it was legit. And it wasn't just you, aka me, being a pussy. It was actually mm-hmm. a really horrible environment to work in. So that was amazing to see people talking about that and to see big names get called out, but also to see it trickle down into regular restaurants with the, where the chef, nobody knows his name, but his employees are able to finally speak out and get some, get some kind of change going. So that only, and then me too, there was a fear that me too was going to just die down. And then the pandemic happened. And then the summer, last summer, just everything was blown wide open for the whole world and for humanity as a whole with Black Lives Matter and also for restaurants and restaurant kitchens. And I think that the best thing that the pandemic did to restaurants, which is the worst, it's like the worst thing that restaurant culture has ever had to live through since the days of Escoffier. And, uh, but the one good thing is that the pandemic made it so that all of the restaurant employees around the world all of a sudden didn't have a job or were laid off or whatever. So saying, fuck it, I'm going to call out the fucking prick who made my life hell, or I'm going to call out um, the wage theft or the racism or all of the multitude of things that go on regularly in restaurants. And to see that happening across social media and employees not being scared anymore and just saying what, like telling the truth because they didn't have anything to lose, right? So I think that that helped. And I think that what's happening now with restaurants starting to reopen in the States at least, is that employers are seeing people aren't rushing to go back to work. People are, people want to get back to work, definitely, but they're not rushing to go back into a toxic environment where they're taken for granted and they're not paid for their hours and their work to death. So I think that some change will come. I think it's going to have to because the labor shortage is very real. That is one hell of a uh, silver lining. <laughs> that's a one. That's a that's a huge silver lining. That's crazy. I wasn't really aware of all that that was coming about and restaurant workers calling out their managers and owners. That's crazy. Well, the most high profile restaurant where that happened was Fat Rice in Chicago, and employees started calling out the owners there 
and they took their uniform t-shirts, their logoed t-shirts and threw them and left them at the entrance to the shuttered restaurant and put pictures of that up on social media and food media sort of exploded because fat rice was a darling of the food media for, for a long time, beard winners, you know, everybody loved that restaurant. And so to see this take place was, it was sort of thrilling because not, I'm not, I'm not like sitting there watching somebody's career burn down, but to see a serial abuser who, you know, had, had countless employees come through that kitchen because of its stature and popularity and to see it called out for act for basically just ignoring the way the world works and saying we're going to do things the way we want to do them here within our little bubble and nobody can tell us different because we're on we're on top of things we're on top you know and you see that happen in so many in so many restaurants that are lauded and loved I mean, just look at what happened with, um, I forget the, oh, the Willow's Inn on Lumi Island that was just reported about in the New York Times. I uh, don't know if you know, no, I don't know I have, if you I'm know these I'm not familiar places. with that one, or that, with that specific story. It's just the latest one, and it's, it's extremely gross, mm. and there's like underage sex and um, feeding vegan customers things with chicken stock in them and lying about ingredients and abusing and all of the things. It's a horrible story, but, and everyone's shocked, but it's like, that still goes on. But to answer your question previously, like it still does go on, but I do think it's changing. And I do think that more and more people aren't going to put up with it. Changing the subject just a little bit, focusing on your career. I would, do you want to talk a bit about writing a cookbook? Because I think that Lots of people have that as like a dream goal. And I know you've written a, a, a couple of books. What was the inspiration for the cookbook, uh, The Everyday Squash Cook? Oh, well, okay. There was no inspiration at all. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't my idea. I, uh, so what happened was I really wanted to write a cookbook. And I, you know, it, I just wanted to get in there. I wanted to get... Uh, make a book happen you know it seemed exciting and so I had made friends with a guy who worked at HarperCollins and he wanted a cookbook from a Toronto chef named Jamie Kennedy and he said I need someone to write it uh, but he doesn't want to do a cookbook so if you can convince him to do a cookbook then you can be the writer and I said okay sure and he said, but the, the catch is that I have this other book called the squash. It's all about squash. And we want to publish a book about squash because there aren't any in the mar on the market right now. It's just like to fill a hole in the market. So there was no deep passion or anything. And, mm. and I've since learned that that's not the secret to success with a cookbook. You, there is some magic that goes into it. And you do have to have some love uh, for the idea, for the concept. So anyway, I did convince Jamie to do a cookbook and we did one and that was great. And then I did the squash book, which was also great. I mean, just the experience was really, you don't know until you do it. So it was really 
fun and eye-opening. And to that end, I probably would never do a cookbook again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it was a terrible experience then. No, (laughs) no. You'll never do it again. (laughs) It wasn't. It wasn't. It really was fun. And I, but I, I feel like, uh, do, and I did them both in the same year. So I did two go- cookbooks in the same year. They came out within a few months of each other. Uh, neither one was a bestseller. They were a ton of work. I made barely any money. At the time, I really didn't care because it's this learning experience you can't get, right? It, so it's like, it's priceless to have the experience. And I'm really glad that I did have that experience. And I made a lot of great connections. But uh, I think it just burnt me out. And I don't have any burning desire to write a cookbook now. Like there is no, uh, I there's no idea for a cookbook that I'm holding on to and praying I can publish. So maybe if I did have a concept in mind, I would want to do another one. But I don't. And I know that doing it, with, if it's not coming from your heart and your gut, it's not worth it. So. Uh, I'm happy that I did the two that I did. And I am really happy that I had that experience. But now I'll leave the making of cookbooks to people who are, you know, on fire for it. (laughs) I think that when people picture making a cookbook, it's just testing recipes and taking pictures, like very aesthetically pleasing pictures of food. But I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it. What was your favorite part and most I guess, uh, the part that you found most challenging about writing the book. Okay, so testing recipes, uh, that doesn't really happen. I mean, it can happen if you, the author, make it happen on your own and on your own dime. Uh, But the publisher does not test recipes. There's no recipe test kitchen with a staff waiting for your beautiful recipes to try them out. (laughs) That's what I thought, but no, that doesn't happen. Like with the squash cookbook, I just came up with recipe ideas and my husband and I would just make them at home. So we had to test them because we had no, we weren't chefs. We didn't have a restaurant. We didn't have a book of recipes to pull from. So we did test them that way, but it was kind of fun. Yeah, it was fun coming up with recipe ideas. And it's, it's interesting to immerse yourself in cookbooks and decide where you're going to go with it, because there are so many cookbooks out there. There's millions of them. And there are so many that are the same. There's, you know, there are a lot that are cookie cutter. So do you want to go in that vein? Do you want to be seasonal? Do you want to be homey do you want to be speaking you know from grandma's voice or whatever there's all these different ways to go do you want to be like all about healthy all about zero calories blah 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 there's all these ways that you can go with it and I feel like the fun part was just really looking at cookbooks not just as a passive consumer but as like oh I'm gonna make one of these who, what books here are inspiring or what's exciting or what is sort of leaps off the page? Because anyone who has any kind of interest in food, there are so many cookbooks now and there are so many that I know it happens with me all the time that I get and I'm excited about. And then they kind of fall flat because a lot of them are coming from a place of uh, publishing houses 
publish cookbooks because they make money. They're not mm. necessarily coming from a place of passion. Very interesting. I think that must, that's that's super eye-opening. Uh, I always thought it was just like a super passionate Julia Child in my mind, you know, coming up with a million recipes. But uh, taking a 180-degree turn uh, in the interview, you currently run an Instagram meme page at Ali Celine. Could you tell us a bit about that? You pronounced it right. <laughs> Yay. I, I took, I think, like six years of French, but I, I mean, that's like, I, I guess that's, uh, that's one accomplishment now. <laughs> well, that account has a lot of American followers and a lot of the Americans think it's pronounced a les. So oh, like God. saying that Celine is a lesbian. <laughs> it's oh. like, no, no, that's not what it is. So the re the name comes from, uh, Iron Chef. And when they would start off the show, the chairman would yell, LA Cuisine. So I thought I'd make it LA Celine. And that, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like, it's just, you know, making fun of restaurant culture through Celine Dion's voice to a degree. I mean, it's not Celine heavy, but she's in there for sure. But how did that come about? Did it, was it just like uh, like one late night that you just created an Instagram and then start making memes? Well, it came about because I, I was doing a, a journalistic investigation into an alleged sexual predator and within my own culinary community in Toronto. And because I was investigating, I couldn't, I, I had to basically go silent. Like I couldn't talk to anyone. I had to keep everything under lock and key for quite a while, for six months, the investigation went on. And I had never experienced anxiety like I did when I was working on that. And I needed an outlet. And I just started fucking around on Instagram stories, making what eventually became memes and I befriended uh, this guy who was making memes um this guy ran an account called heck off supreme his name was Andy he's since passed away but at the time he was uh we were talking and he said yeah your stuff is funny but you should be making it in the proper meme format and you should start an account so he helped me set it up and and uh it just was a it was a way to sort of bitch about the restaurant industry in a loving way and make fun of it and uh, make these jokes about aspects of the industry that are so deep insider jokes that nobody would get except someone who's, you know, worked garbanger or had to clean a deep fryer or whatever. So it was, it was fun and it, it just sort of helped my brain during that really hard time in my life. I, the the account is hilarious. Uh, I I think that when going through it, you can really tell that there are some jokes that are really dark, but really funny. But like comes from like a really dark place. I I think that memes can like today, especially especially for our generation, serve as a way for people to laugh at their own misfortune. Do you think that this is an effective coping coping me mechanism that allows people to really work through their problems and help them feel connected to others 
who have been going through the same situation? Or do you think this is maybe a way that our generation avoids dealing with our problems by making jokes about it? Um, you know, somebody, some could say that it's avoidance, but I don't, you know, I don't really think it is because if you've got serious problems, no meme is going to save you, you know? Um, so I think memes just help to lighten the load and bring a little humor into the darkness. And the last year has been really dark for everyone. And so just having having jokes about hard times or hard situations is, is helpful. And it, you know, it's just, we have memes now, but in the past we had whatever we had, um, Saturday night live, which we still have, or we had, uh, David Letterman or George Carlin stand up or whatever. Right. So there's always been outlets, but memes are just like super, accessible and quick and boom, boom, boom. And there's a bazillion of them that you can just dive into and forget about your problems and they're fun. So I, I, I think that anything that I, well, I'm repeating myself, anything that just lightens the mood of what we've all been going through is welcome. One of my favorite quotes from the movie Steel Magnolias is from Dolly Parton's character, Truvy, who says, Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. And I second that. That is uh, the way I feel about memes. <laughs> uh, I'm just picturing uh, maybe an older listener having no idea or like doesn't understand uh, what we're talking about. But uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, our listeners will. You've really accomplished uh, many people's life's goals of being a freelance writer, a, writing a cookbook running a successful Instagram meme page, uh, being a journalist. What advice do you have for someone, let's say like who's like 19, who just graduated high school, who wants to accomplish the same things? What advice do you have for them? Well, my advice is, um, ooh, I don't have any kind of a speech, but I'll just say, you know, uh, what I've done in my career has nothing's been planned. I didn't go to school for anything. I went to school for film. So uh, there's, you know, I didn't go to culinary school, so I don't have those student loans hanging over my head. Thank God. Culinary <laughs> school is a waste of money. Don't bother. And I didn't go to journalism school, so I don't have those loans. Thank you. Um, I've learned everything on the job. I'm not saying it's the best way to do it, but it worked for me. And the, the number one thing in any career, but most definitely in journalism, is that it really, you could be the worst writer on the planet, but if you're well-connected, you're gold. So definitely write and become the best writer that you can. but make as many connections as possible. Thankfully, with all of the social media that exists, it's easy to reach out or to sort of get your face in front of writers that you admire, publications that you're interested in, and just sort of make yourself known a little bit. And the more people that you know, the better. So it's all about who you know. Uh, maybe go to school, maybe not. It's your call. <laughs> 
And, you know, I think that the way the world works now is that everybody's on a constant hustle. So that's not even advice. That's just how we do things. It's just a constant hustle, sleep when you die, and never give up. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show. Thank you. You can follow Ivy Knight on the Twitter account at Ivy Knight or on Instagram at Ivy Porkshop Knight or her meme account at Ale Celine, spelled A L L E Z C E L I N E. Wherever you are listening, remember to follow us or subscribe, whether it be Spotify or Apple Podcasts, to be notified of the latest episodes. Also, it really helps our podcast. If you think there's a guest that you would like us to interview or you yourself would like to be on our podcast, send us an email at posticlechronicles at gmail.com. You can also keep up with the latest PCC news by following us on Instagram or Twitter. Special thanks to Jesse Mack, for her contributions to this episode. Postal Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the co-producer for this episode. Our staff also includes Kasun Medegadara and Russell Slav Seroka. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music. And there are other music credits on our website. Thank you for listening. See you next time.